you know, there's this concept called conscious capitalism. I think you can still make money and still run a business, but do it in a way that is value-based. Welcome to the Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, yes, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. Find out more at wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we tackle the future of work and philanthropy by seeing the world through the eyes of architect turned philanthropist Gary Sharma. Gary lived in Canada and India before finishing her high school in Dallas, Texas. After spending time in the family business, she turned to pursue her nonprofit interests with an emphasis on issues concerning women and children. She currently sits on the boards, among others, of TalkSTEM, the Dallas Museum of Art, the Texas Women's Foundation, and the regional UNICEF board. And as if that isn't enough to fill your day, she works with the Seattle-based company Top Pot Donuts and is the architect advisor for her family real estate development business. Gary, her husband and daughter live in Dallas and Boston. We're going to jump into the heart of the conversation where Gary explains where she feels philanthropy is shaping the future of work. Claire, over to you. Gary, we as an organization are very much focused on the future of work. So philanthropy and work are not two words and activities that are seldom brought together in very obvious ways. So yes, you've got your corporate social responsibility funds and you know teams and things like that, but they're not really seen as two things that interact, correlate, and actually really impact each other. Share with us how, from your lens, you can see how philanthropy today is shaping the future of work in very unseen but critical ways. I think it's from expectations. The younger generation, they seem to have the pulse or sometimes they have a better understanding about what's going on. You know, there's this concept called conscious capitalism. I think you can still make money and still run a business, but do it in a way that is value-based, that's just more conscientious. We have some 20 and 30-year-olds in our family And just hearing that they're interviewing the companies that they want to work with, and they're saying, well, that doesn't seem like an ethical company. You know, like I think it's kind of the the responsibility to do things in a way that's just a little bit more. It's work. It's it's definitely work. But I think it's something that's, that's trying to be expected from all organizations. And sometimes the younger generation, I think the only thing that makes them younger is that they wanted it to happen yesterday and they don't realize that there's a process to kind of unfold and to move in in that direction also it's about portfolios and impact investing there's there's a lot of different ways and so rather than having two silos of a work corporate kind of situation and a philanthropy arm I think it just makes a richer environment. I think you know at, at top pot you know just we do like these fun runs and just 
we kind of, you know, it's just the, the employees enjoy it just as much as the people who are participating. I think you can um, cultivate and speak to it. It might not be for every member of your staff or employee team, but definitely could create a richer environment, connecting people and show being a leader in philanthropy as well, as along with other things. I think you're very right in that there, there is a consciousness in younger people that definitely doesn't exist in the older generations around there's a very clear intention about them almost doing due diligence on the places they're going into, the brands that they're engaging with, you know, the companies that they're choosing to work for. And I think you're absolutely right in that. I think, though, that that's not the only way that that work is, is being shaped. Yes, it is a generational thing, but I think... and this is where I, I almost want to take the conversation to next is the pandemic has really impacted philanthropic giving and that is going to have a ripple impact into society and the economy that we can't actually even see right now but it is going to impact because the organizations that were being funded just before the pandemic happened and aren't being funded now because the pandemic has happened are a critical and vital part of our society and they're not going to be as functional as they were before and that that has this knock-on impact. Share with us why philanthropy is so critical in our ability to actually grow as a nation. Wealth is wealth. If you're talking about philanthropy in a context of like a solid foundation that generates wealth. I think that they might have to readjust and kind of focus in a little bit more about their values and their giving. They might have to kind of make some adjustments and everything, but I think those are pretty much okay. On the individual giving standpoint and the mid-level giving standpoint um, of people of high net donor wealth, I think definitely there was uncertainty there. So I do agree with you, but I don't, I have to say like, so the, you know, the Communities Foundation in Dallas just did a record-breaking day of giving. Like, and, and again, I have a friend that works there. And so they were kind of braced for like, they didn't know what to expect. And it's about giving a little bit, but by from a lot of people. I mean, maybe giving has to change. Maybe it has to change if people are behind a certain value system. I think they might give, they might not necessarily give at the level they might want to give because of the uncertainty, the economic uncertainty. It surprised me because I would have thought exactly how you were saying, how giving is going to actually decrease, even though the needs are increasing. And I think that that might be where it's like the needs have increased, the amount of people who are becoming homeless. Like there's a very serious issue of eviction and people just slipping through the cracks and having lost their jobs. And so those kind of things. So those kind of areas, probably the need is a lot more than um, before. And I am no expert on this on this particular topic, but I just, from where I'm sitting, there's an adjustment, I guess is what I'd say. I mean, I think organizations like, you know, the DMA and uh, they kind of have to kind of look at things a little bit, you know, more seriously, just about to be sustainable. And, you know, if it's a matter of, you know, adjusting their model of how things are done or, you know, they have to kind of figure that out. I think organizations like that seem to be a little bit more um, 
on unsure footing. And so, and then we need the arts. We do need the arts. I mean, I think it's a, that's a very uh, crucial part of uh, who we are as a country and, you know, organizations, I think that are doing more work on the ground that are affecting change with inequity. I think they've been able to attract money because I think of the issues of social injustice coming to light. I'm really happy that you're seeing a different side to what I'm seeing. And I'm really happy. Like there's a lot of hope in, in what you're saying. I think you mentioned something critical there, which is what we really should be pondering about. I agree with you. Dallas is a very philanthropic city, more so than any other that I have lived or done extensive work in. And I think that's maybe something that we should be looking at is, is how do you replicate that model? How do we make places more philanthropic? Because that's dealing at a systemic level with issues. Yeah, I think they made it easy. I think they have a, you know, North Texas Giving Day. I think they had organizations reach out to their fundraisers. So even if it's $25, it just, and there's matching grants. And so they just were able to, you know, have people in the, you know, in their two minute coffee break, just hit click, 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 you know, give $25 to this organization, this organization, this, you know, like just their set of organizations that they've maybe always wanted to give, but never don't really care to attend or, you know, just get more involved. And I think they, they just, they made it easy. And um, I think the average, I'd be kind of curious. I could probably get that number for you is like the, probably the average that people give would not be considered very much, but the number of people are giving. And that's what you want because philanthropy is not something for the uber wealthy. It's the average family on the street that chooses to give a very small amount, but consistently. You add all of those up together and that's where the difference comes in. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where you talk about the investment in in employees and how what they would be like if they could also participate in some small way, not because their boss asked them to, not because they, you know, want to show up or not, you know, like I think for the right reasons, I think. And, you know, I think a lot of companies uh, look to their um, employees to kind of see what what is something that interests you, because I think these conversations are happening. A startup came across my desk this week called Roundup App. And essentially what they're doing is they've built a platform where you can, you have all of these charities and exactly the concept of Acorns. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the company Acorns, but they basically round up all your spending on your credit card. So let's say you spend, you know, um, $2.99 on something, they'll round up that one cent and put it into a savings account for you. And so what this Roundup app platform is doing is they basically are taking that exact same concept. So they're rounding up your spending, but it's going towards a charity. Basically, what I'm taking from what you're saying, and I think this is a really critical point, is that giving needs to start happening on a mass, small scale. And it's great to see that there's technology that's starting to back that up. That makes it easy and facilitates it. I think one of the first ones was like Kiva or something like that, and they just... They made it so easy. I think it's just using similar platforms to just, but I love the acorn idea. I mean, just something that's yeah. subtle, small, but just it's cultivating it. It's just like how you'd cultivate yeah. and train anything else. And I don't know if, you know, we're not really flexing our philanthropic muscles as I think we, you know, as young people, they're always, you know, you, you're talking about volunteer hours and the hope is that they, 
they connect with the work that they're doing, you know, but with the whole nonprofit sector, and if you kind of start looking at the issues that are plaguing our society, I could see it be very overwhelming, and we're being overwhelmed on all different sides right now. But for me personally, I feel like I could do something. I mean, I feel like it 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 helps to keep me sane to kind of deal with the overwhelming, even if it you know knowing that it's something small. It's just you know it's what I can do in my little corner. And hopefully that amplifies the pandemic. It has, in many ways, put a magnifying gloss on very deep societal issues and and issues that I know that you feel very passionate about. And the the problem with these issues that have just like really bubbled up to the surface again is that they're issues that have been around for so long and they continue to just persist in our society. Give us your thoughts on the current state of affairs and and how it's impacting philanthropy specifically. People doing the work on the ground have always been doing the work, like you were saying, and now the stakes are raised. I think the pandemic and in a lot of conversations, I, I say that there's really two pandemics. One is the COVID-19 pandemic that has affected everyone equally, but definitely has affected people of color significantly more. And the inequities uh, with the with the healthcare system, the reasons why they might uh, that people of color might be more prone to getting sick, the uh, comorbidities around that, um, all that is based in inequity at the end of the day. It's where they live. It's the water they drink. It's the um, education, the access to education and food. You know, So all that kind of is very interrelated to that. So that's the first one. The other one is the, raci- the racial injustice. The murder of George Floyd has really been the clar- clarion call for, for all organizations, corporations, um, for-profit and non-profit. First, acknowledge it. Um, and that's where you know I am so proud of the Dal- uh, the DMA, the Dallas Museum of Art, to pivot around COVID nineteen protocols. And then when the George Floyd murder happened, they they really kind of you know stepped into it, and they just realized you know art is a wonderful place for um, beauty and enjoyment, but it's also a place where we can't you know has a reflection on society. You know, I think they've done now collaborations, um, trying to with an artist to educate people of color about COVID-19. So it's all kind of interrelated. I think that's a very important point to highlight is that this has brought clarity. It's as somebody who really deeply understands change and who's dedicated my life to navigating organizations through it, there's a part in change management where everything has to hit rock bottom before it can start getting better again. And that cycle repeats itself multiple times through the process. And I think 2020 is one of those rock bottom years where everything just has to come out. And as you say, it's in that coming out process where a lot of clarity happens. And that clarity is critical because it, it, it focuses everybody. It's like, okay, here's the mission. Now, now, how do we move forward from here? And I don't. I think too little is being spoken about that. Too little is being said about that aspect of it. 
Absolutely, Claire. And I think one of the things that is a place to start is, and what we've realized also with some of the work with the boards that I've been doing, is that there has to be a foundation of common knowledge and common understanding and language. Either the question is, how do we fix it? Or how, you know, what do I need to do? But I think right now it's, it's a time to just listen and learn that this is this is the truth. And it might not be your truth, but it's somebody else's truth. And we have to create space for two realities to exist and respect the other, especially in the world of philanthropy, when you're, you know, when you have this kind of almost like a cognitive dissonance, sometimes we need at least a common language and a foundation of understanding to move forward. I think from my side, I think you've really You've certainly started to answer my question, which is really from this quite serious picture that you've painted, how do we move forward and what was what is specifically the role of philanthropy philanthropy in that? Um, are there, is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, rather than providing a service, actually moving in towards activism, because sometimes a lot of the social issues are really rooted in policy issues. Um, so they want to go to the root and just kind of change policy. Um, and the other thing is we can also demand how wealth is grown in an organization. A lot of foundations that have tremendous amount of wealth and grow that wealth. You know, now if you really wanted to kind of put a magnifying glass and, and is that wealth grown in an equitable way? Are they investing in other industries that might create harm? You know, and they might be doing good with one hand, and but they might be also creating harm with the other. And I think, and these are not my ideas. These I read a book over the summer called Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, who is a fund manager for a very prominent fund. I believe it's called the Reynolds Fund. And he's a, a indigenous person. And so I can't remember what tribe he came from. Decolonizing wealth sounds like a very strong statement, but I think if you understand like there's two different ways that wealth can be distributed and one being very linear and the other one being more symbiotic. And so it's just changing the language so that you're actually creating a solution that's long-term and, and organic versus putting a Band-Aid or linear kind of like that just solves it temporarily. It's a good book that I think that really has kind of influenced now the way that I'm seeing and what I'm expecting from organizations. The other thing is people of color on boards and leadership levels. I think that's, you talk about, um, you know, the voice and the um, experiences that they bring. There's also gender equity on boards. There's a movement to put 20% of women on boards. There's actually a, a research that was done. There's different ways out there for people of color to get involved, but also I think it's about integrating into the existing system to kind of add value. That's all. I think before, I would think maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was just about checking the box. I think right now it's a whole other level. What I'd like to do is I'd really like to turn the magnifying glass to your philanthropy work. And I know that's naturally something that you do with your husband, Alex. So please feel free to weave him into the conversation as, as we navigate this exciting topic. What drives your work in this area? What is that underlying focus that you're waking up and, and working towards every single day? Well, first, uh, thanks for having me, Claire and Doug. Um, so, yes, I... 
you know, I guess I could go back a little bit in time and, and kind of talk about when we kind of started on this path, because I do feel it definitely is a has been a path for us. Um, you know, back in 2000, when we knew the 20th century was kind of coming to a close and there was so much excitement and buzz about the 21st century, uh, the the Millennium Development Goals, you know, we, we kind of, it came across one of our um, desks and we, we absolutely absorbed it and just really kind of said, okay, well, this new century could actually be something different. It could be a new pivot. And, and I think, you know, just when they talked about eradicating extreme poverty and promoting gender equality, I think those just really just resonated with us. And there's not a day that goes by where we're not either thinking, learning, or doing. You and Alex both are, are just these humans that wake up with the bigger picture in mind in the morning. It's not just, you know, get kids to school, get through the grind of the day. It's very much how are we active participants in this century that we're living in. And that's that's exactly why you're here today. You know, the causes that we we back are often rooted in our on our own personal experiences. They shape us as humans. What experiences have brought you to where you are today? That's a really good question, Doug. I think, you know, especially now in a time when everyone is kind of looking at how we got here, you know, if it's a matter of what's going on in the world, privilege, inequity, those kind of things. And so it kind of, you know, in this in this realm of philanthropy, you know, Alex and I have had to kind of, you know, we both come from similar but different backgrounds. My parents moved to Canada. His parents came to uh, America in the 60s. So we're really considered first generation immigrants. And growing up in a family that is an immigrant family, uh, there is philanthropy, but it is not in what would can be considered a traditional Western version of philanthropy. We would, you know, my parents would support family back home. They would have an open door policy for, um, you know, family. And even if it was somebody that was coming for an education, we, a friend of a friend or a, rel a friend of a relative, we'd have an open door for a warm meal, a room to stay in. And those were kind of how the immig immigrant experience kind of wove into philanthropy. So we just saw that generous spirit, even though while they were really working hard to generate wealth, and really the main purpose is to generate wealth for the next generation. It's like stand on their shoulders, kind of, you know, provide an education. And both came from that background. So we really have had to learn kind of how philanthropy works in America, how it works in the Western world. Gary, that's so fascinating when you were saying the stories about, you know, the open door and the warm meal and everything. I, coming from Africa, naturally, you know, I had very similar experiences there. And I, I have to share this. My dad, one day, my dad was very much like, you know, very philanthropic in his mindset as well and was constantly helping people and everything. But it went to a whole new level the one day when my mom and I arrived home. She picked me up from school that day and we arrived home. My bicycle was gone and her dining room table was gone. <laughs> I think I was like six or seven and I'm like, where's my bike? Like, how can you give my bike away? And my mom's like, where are we going to eat dinner tonight? And my dad's like, well, we've got the kitchen nook. Like, we didn't need a dining room table. <laughs> Gary, let's, let's go into some of the details. You... 
you serve on the board of the, um, you know, Dallas Modern Art Museum. You serve on the board of the Texas Women's Foundation, UNICEF, TalkStem, and you also own Top Pot Donuts. Is there a golden thread that runs through each of these avenues? Because they're very specific, but at the same time, very diverse as well. Yes, I think sometimes when I, you know, if I'm trying to explain the things that I'm involved with, it just sounds like I'm all over the place. And to me, it makes sense because they all represent a facet of myself um, and they all have come into my life um, very organically. And I've had to say no when things did not seem like it was a right fit, either time or space wise in my life. Um, so I would say I'm the gold, like I'm the kind of, I would say golden, but I'm the thread that runs through it. Um, and they kind of do represent. And, you know, I think I, you know, the, the one that, you know, made a really big impact was UNICEF. Just that was because that was the first board um, that I was on and just understanding it. I think it spoke to me um, about the goals, about the millennium goals. And so um, I was able to kind of learn about the issues and also understand the complexity of the issues. They all play a role in my life. You know, Texas Women's Foundation, very dear topic, very dear to my heart and talk STEM as well. Just, you know, being again, talk, speaking to the science and I really come um, the, to the sciences being um, accessible to young girls and Top Pot has just been a joy to be a part of and um, just again uh, it's a great industry it's a hard industry to be working um, working in um, you know I, our other work is really real estate development and that's where I use my educational background as an architect and um, but I'm also a foodie and have always been a foodie so when we kind of embarked on um, the business of Top Pot Donuts, it was a natural fit because I was able to work behind the kitchen, in the kitchen, behind the scenes with um, some flavor development. One of the things that I absolutely loved was the donation section on the Top Pot Donuts website. And I just love what you guys are doing there. Do you maybe just want to share a little bit in terms of what you guys do there? Top Pot Donuts is really a Seattle company, and it was created by two brothers there. We have, you know, we're a big part of it, and we have some other um, people also involved. And I think, you know, Seattle does have an ethos. I think our work environment, um, how um, our uh, our pay scale, everything is very, we really try to see the equitable lens. I think it, it is a place that lends itself. And it's, it was very fascinating because we did open some stores in Dallas and it was uh, for some of our employees that came from Seattle um, to Dallas and hired. I think they, it was a little bit of a culture shock for them. The fact that a lot of our employees had to travel so much further and they all kind of lived in a certain area of Dallas, you know, these kind of things were kind of new to them. Right now, all of our top management are all women, you know, I mean, we don't, we didn't do it on purpose. It just, they were so awesome at everything they did. We're just like, okay, you're promoted. Just all the way down to our baristas, which we really, you know, are behind the counter staff and our person who makes the donuts. We, you know, we have hired, uh, you know, people with very little experience and trained them because we feel like it's important because they, you know, might have had a really rough time getting to the place where they are right now and, and that they need to be given a chance and 
we just are providing are trying to provide opportunities where we can and still run a business. Gary, I've got a question for you, but and it's much more of a personal um, question around your daughter, Kavita. She's got an, a remarkable adoption story. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and how does her journey with you influence where you and how you spend your, and invest your, your resources at the moment? Uh, yes, that's, that is a good question. Um, you know, I don't talk about it that much because, you know, like when you adopt a child, it's like they're just yours. And I always like to say she chose me. Like I just feel like it's such a transcendent experience when you go through the adoption process. It has, um, you know, we, you know, you spend a year doing paperwork and then there's people interviewing you and um, it's very technical, you know, you get a medical exam and all that kind of thing. But one of the things, you know, I think, you know, I, I want to always equip myself with knowledge. And so I just started doing a deep dive into, you know, how do they bond? You know, how do they, you know, learn? How can they, you know, and so I attended a lecture at the Center for Brain Health about nature versus nurture. That really just locked it in for me that this was the right thing to do, because they did talk about how, you know, although you know, nature gives a foundational building block. It's really nurture is what putting the right elements into a person's life, you know, and you think about, and then you, you know, just reflecting with children who don't have things, you know, like if you put in just a st stable home environment, education, food, you know, um, your love, you know, like all those things will, you know, create a well-rounded productive human being. And, you know, as a parent, I think that's kind of really kind of like what we all strive for is like a well-adjusted, productive human being. So it got me started thinking about this idea of, you know, and I think that's really tying back into the work that UNICEF does. It just it just provides something, you know, for children who don't have, um, you know, and for, you know, every child that's adopted, there's so many that are not adopted. And, you know, I kind of go through, you know, sometimes I hear people talk about philanthropy like, I have a wife and blah, blah, blah. I have a mother and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of, I kind of look at it very differently. I, I think of like every child has value, not that that child has value because I have a child. I look at that every mother has value and is deserving versus I have a mother so that I think that mothers are deserving. So I kind of, I kind of look at the whole world a little bit differently than, and it's always interests me when people say, well, I relate to somebody else's issue because I have that. So like if somebody decides not to get married or not to have a child, can they not relate to that? I mean, I kind of wonder because like, that's how people, a lot of times people couch empathy in that, in that way. People couch empathy and like, oh, I'm empathetic towards another person's situation because I have that. It's a very subtle shift in perspective, but I feel like when when you see the world in that way, I think it's easier to do the work. I think it's easier to kind of go, you know, do what you can. Like, you're not going to reach every single child and every single mother, but like, but every child is deserving. And wow, there's this place that is providing stability for children that are deserving. So I actually see in my own words and actions sometimes that exact behavior that you've just spoken of. So thank you for the personal challenge on that level. But we need to allow space for other narratives that don't sound and look like ours and they can't be discounted. They have to be accepted for real narratives that are people's realities. It's really the people and I think going kind of tying back into the inequity and the 
social justice aspect, it's, you know, you hear so many conversations about privilege and not privilege. I think that's a reality that exists. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any value or negative or positive to it. It is what it is. And it's just a responsibility for people to have that have privilege to create the space for people who don't and have their voice heard with compassion and understanding. I speak as a person who has privilege. You know, when my parents came, they were educated. You know, my, my dad was educated. My mother was not, but my, uh, my mother had a high school education. But a lot of my family, even back home, is educated. So I think that in itself is a privilege to start with. And, and because of that privilege, we were able to build our wealth. And so I think I don't have to feel bad about it, but I, d I have to kind of also acknowledge it and then move forward with, and I will use this responsibly, this place of privilege responsibly, so that the underserved and the marginalized and the disenfranchised will have a voice. I mean, we'll have a space. Gary, we're coming to the end of our conversation and I'm going to circle back to donuts. Donuts and art, they both evoke deep joy in my soul. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of Dagier as well, because he's a, a self-taught chef who I would happily hire any day. So I know that donuts evoke deep joy for him too. How has joy influenced your life choices? Absolutely. Joy is like one of my favorite words. You know, whenever I wish anybody well, I wish them joy. I wish them joy before I even wish them happiness sometimes, because I feel like Joy, it's that subtle, it's that subtle difference again. Like happiness kind of comes and goes and happiness, the opposite of happiness is sad. But I mean, joy is something more internal. I think it just, it speaks to your authentic self, I think in a way. Um, joy is like, exactly, I totally agree with you. Joy is experiencing a piece of art for me. I think, you know, during the pandemic, I would just, look at art pieces of art on my computer, like just to be happy and feel that joy again. It's not the same, but it was a good substitute for a while. Being on the front lines of positive change, you know, sometimes it's hard work, but you just, there's an elation that you feel like there's a difference being made. And the, and the camaraderie around that um, experience is, brings a lot of joy. And, um, and then of course, eating a moist top hot donut with just the right amount of <laughs> I think to just exactly balance. <laughs> I think that I think that appeals to the inner child. I think that joy is the inner child going, oh yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the best part of you know top hot donuts is the seeing the walking in and seeing the kids with the powdered sugar donut, you know, all, sprinkles all over and on the floor and you know that's. It's yeah. joy. Joy is also like seeing children, you know, playing and laughing. I think that's where to come back to the philanthropy, you know, like whether it be in a field in Africa or a playground in a private school, they all are deserving of joy. And I think as adults, we have to just remind ourselves to, you know, find joy in our life. So I think that's the connection. Gary, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It's, it's honestly been a great conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Your questions were so provocative and I, I had to really use my brain, but it was really good. <laughs> it was really good. Was good. Like, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I've never, because you just kind of do the work sometimes. You just kind of get up and like you said, answer the phone calls and just do the work. And 
um, you know, make sure that everything's going smoothly, but just kind of be able to have um, time to sit back and reflect and kind of go what the why and the what and the how. I think that is um, that is very special. So thank you for that gift. No problem. It's it's honestly it's a pleasure. Thank you. Some interesting insights there from Gary, who has a deep knowledge and obvious passion for her philanthropic work. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it of value, please don't be a stranger. Make sure you pop back for more top of mind conversations. Just a reminder for more information about Wanda and the integration services they supply, you can visit their website. That's WNDYR.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.